All right, we're going to start the class. This is my last Sunday school lesson. Um, so I'm really grateful for this. Uh, Sunday school for me is a really important part um, of, uh, you know, when we planted this church because um, you can do things in Sunday school that you can't do in the sermon. Um, you can look at it. You can look at the Bible and theology in a sort of classroom setting. It allows for a little more interaction. There's a lot more density of passages we can look at. And you can just approach it in a much more like um, systematic and sort of classroom approach, which you really can't do. So the way I always describe it is in the sermons, I'm aiming at the heart. And then in the Sunday school lessons, I'm aiming at the mind. But both are important, right? You, you need both to, to love and appreciate God. Um, so let me begin with a, a word of prayer. Almighty God, what a great privilege it is to gather, to think about uh, the Bible in a, in a deeper way. We fully recognize that many, many believers around the globe do not have this privilege, or they can only meet under great duress and persecution. And so we are so grateful for this opportunity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So let me do a quick review of what we looked at last week. And last week we looked at the tension between the Abrahamic and Mosaic covenants. And the reason why there's tension is because they sound so different, <laughs> right? In the Abrahamic covenant, it's promises, it's God's grace. And in the Mosaic covenant, there seems to be all of this if-then language. Um, and so they seem to be in contradiction to one another. And the thesis that I tried to present is that actually the Mosaic covenant continues the Abrahamic covenant. They're in fundamental agreement and continuity so that both the Abrahamic and the Mosaic covenants are full of grace, right? It's not like you're saved one way in the Abrahamic and then you're saved another way in the Mosaic covenant. Nevertheless, there is a dual nature in the Mosaic covenant. And this is what makes it so interesting and then um, so complicated and then so much debate or so much um, puzzlement. And yes? I wouldn't say it's a hybrid. It's fully a covenant of grace um, so that it continues. It agrees with the Abrahamic covenant. Um, God does not change his mind. He's still rescuing his people through Jesus Christ, uh, through a savior. But there is embedded inside the Mosaic covenant. And maybe we could even say this seems to be at the forefront of the Mosaic covenant. There is this conditional works uh, nature but it, it's, it's a drama with regard to that. So the, the, the works, the performance, the obedience does not have to do with eternal salvation, heaven and hell, but it has to do with whether the people will be in the land, stay in the land. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, so today we're going to now move to the next covenant, which is the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant um, it's very important. Um, I want to present to you that the, the Davidic covenant, remember the thesis, all the covenants continue the covenant before it. And so I would articulate it as the Davidic covenant is the narrowing of the Mosaic covenant. It sort of narrows down to a single man. One man namely the king. Um, you see this especially in First and Second Kings, if you, re- if you read those books. The king is the representative of the nation. So that the fate of Israel really rests on the righteousness or the unrighteousness of the king. And you can say, well, you know, that makes sense sociologically. The king sets the example. He sets the culture. You know, if he's worshiping Baal, then the other people are going to be worshiping Baal. Um, But it's more than that. The king represents the people. Um, And so that's the Mosaic Covenant, right? Um, It's works, obedience, and they can stay in the land. And then the Davidic Covenant basically narrows it down to it's the works of the king. Okay? So let's take a look at the Davidic Covenant. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Um, This is the prophet Nathan. um, And he's talking to David about his son. So let me read the passage. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 
I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Um, There's a lot here that I want to unpack, but the Davidic covenant is unpacked and more fully explained in the Psalms and the prophets. But let's just look at uh, what's here in chapter 7. So the first thing we learn is that this king that will come out of David from his own body, his son, this king will be the greatest of all kings. He'll be the king of kings. Um, let me just highlight this language of forever, right? The throne of his kingdom will last forever. And maybe you could say that's sort of like um, exaggerated language of grandeur. Uh, maybe, but then if you read the rest of the Bible, you realize, oh, like it's said again and again, like it's really talking about this will be an everlasting kingdom, an, an eternal throne. What sort of human being lives forever, Right? And so it's kind of a puzzle. I imagine at the time people said, well, that's, that's some puzzling language. It must mean that like maybe the lasting effect or the dynasty will last forever. But um, we'll leave that as a puzzle, okay, for now. The second thing is that God will rescue the whole world through this king. So here you have Jeremiah 23, verses 5 through 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And so the king will be the source of salvation for God's people. And through Judah and Israel, the whole world, right? Israel is to be the light to the nations. And so um, this is where we get, you know, the word Messiah uh, becomes associated with savior, Messiah simply means um, anointed, anointed king. Um, and it's referring to the son of David, this, this promised future great king. Um, and he will save the world. Okay. Um, the third thing we see is that his kingdom will cover the whole earth. Uh, you see this in so many different passages. My favorite is Daniel chapter 2. Daniel 2 is this um, dream that Nebuchadnezzar has, if you guys remember this. He has this multi-layered statue representing all the earthly kingdoms of the world. And then, high up on the mountain, there's this stone, uncut by any human man, comes tumbling down, crashes into the statue, destroys all the worldly kingdoms, and then this stone grows to fill the whole earth. Right? That's the, the, the kingdom of God. That's the, the messianic king. You see this also in Psalm 2. Psalm 2, verses 6 to 8. Listen to this. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Right? That's the, um, the temple mount in Jerusalem. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So it's the same language in the Second Samuel 7, right? Sonship language. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. So this is no re- mere regional kingship who, who, who controls the land of Palestine. This future Davidic king will rule the whole world. And then the final thing we see, and this is the most important, is that this Davidic king will be God's own son. So you see this language, 2 Samuel 7, 14. I will be to him, I will be his father, and he will be my son. Right? I will be his father, he will be my son. Um, The first thing you should know is that this sonship language does not mean that this king will be divine. That's not the way people understood it. Please remember the Jews are very strict monotheists. They did not think, oh, you know, David's son is going to be the second person of the Trinity. Um, but sonship, um, it meant a lot of different things. It meant that, you know, God would have special care and attention to this future king. But it also meant that the king would reflect God's very nature. Because a, a, a son takes after his father, right? So a lot of people always remark, Judah and Noah look remarkably like me, right? Because they're my sons. They came from my body. Um, 
I often tell them, like, uh, your job is to take after me and imitate me. You know, what does daddy like to do? He likes to read books. And so what does that mean for you guys? <laughs> that, that's part of your sonship duties. But, um, you know, there's a passage, for example, in the Gospels when uh, Jesus is debating with the Pharisees. And then, um, remember, they say, oh, our father's Abraham. And how does Jesus respond? He says, no, your father's Satan, right? You, you, you know, Satan lies and he murders. and That's your heart. So you always, the son always resembles the father, right? So the fact that the, uh, this Davidic king will resemble David, I mean, sorry, resemble God means that he will display God's righteous character, okay? And so then... Um, in the Davidic covenant, um, this title, Son of God, came to have like a special, almost technical meaning. Again, not divinity, but it meant, uh, it was a messianic title. It meant David's son, uh, uh, this uh, future Davidic king. So, for example, in, in John one forty nine, Nathaniel answered Jesus, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. He's not making two different statements. He's not saying, oh, you're the second person of the Trinity, and you're this messianic king. He's saying the same thing. He's just repeating himself. Son of God means King of Israel. And this is when, this is how we can understand the rest of the covenant because it says, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him. Uh, uh, discipline him. A lot of people are confused by that because they're immediately thinking about Jesus Christ, you know, the, 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 the divine son. And they're like, I don't understand how Jesus com- can, can commit iniquity. And that's not how the Davidic covenant works. Again, they're not thinking of a divine figure. They're thinking specifically of David's human son. And David's human son will sin, just like all human beings sin. But God's promise is that unlike Saul, God is not going to withdraw his loyal, steadfast love. He will discipline David's son. And so the rest of the story, the rest of the Old Testament is basically this single one question. Who is the son of David? And in the ancient world, son doesn't mean like directly underneath one generation. It can mean multiple generations down. So if one of your ancestors is this, this great figure, you would call yourself, I'm the son of this great figure, right? So it could be the grandson, great-grandson, great-great-grandson. So we're looking for this male descendant of King David who's going to fulfill this great prophecy. And at first it seems like it's his direct son, Solomon. <laughs> right? I, I want to emphasize that. Um, Solomon's reign seemed to fulfill the Davidic covenant. Um, the kingdom reaches heights it's never reached before, but it ends in failure. And then the rest of First and Second Kings is basically, you should be reading it as a search for David's son. And so there are several good, king, good kings in the, line of, uh, in, the, in the kingdom of Judah. There's Asa, Jehoshaphat, there's Hezekiah and Josiah, and then finally Zedekiah is the last one. And they all fail. So you're supposed to read First and Second Kings where you're like excited at first and then a big letdown, right? You're, you're very disappointed. And what's really strange is that despite this atrocious record and then despite the end of the house of David as rulers, you would think that the Bible writers would sort of modify the Davidic covenant, soften the language, kind of like, you know, pare down the expectations, but it actually grows and becomes bigger over time. This is what's really astonishing. So Isaiah 9, verses 6 to 7, listen to this. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Okay, that's, that makes sense. Mighty God, <laughs> Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. It will just grow and grow and grow forever. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. Remember, he's, he reflects the Father from this time forth and forevermore. <laughs> so this is no mere human king, um, but divine traits are attributed to him. A mighty God. So how would that have been understood? Again, Jews are strict monotheists. So they were thinking of you know this person, this Davidic king as somehow reflecting God imaging God, but then we as New Testament believers, we could look at these prophecies and realize 
oh, the Bible is talking literally, right? He's mighty God. He's an everlasting Father. And um, I don't know if I have it printed for you in the in your hand up, I want to read you one more passage, Psalm 89, because it's just amazing to me. There's, we could just read passage after passage where the language of the Bible is so extravagant and so extreme that it gets to the point where no human being could possibly fulfill this prophecy. It, it just can't. And that's, that's what sets us up for the New Testament. Let me read to you Psalm 89, verse 24 through 29. Again, speaking of the Davidic king, listen to this. My fa- this is God. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him. And in my name shall his horn be exalted. Horn just means his strength. I will set, I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. This is the, um, um, the dual rivers, the Mesopotamian river. So like his kingdom will be so huge. He will like be able to stretch out his arms and touch these, these markers. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, the rock of my salvation. I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his, his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. So what are the days of the heavens? Eternity, right? So this is, this is, this is an eternal reign. Um, the King of Kings. And, and then finally, um, as New Testament believers, in the fullness of time, we realize, and even, even at the ministry of Jesus, it wasn't fully understood. But after his resurrection, we began to realize, oh, this Davidic king is God's very own son. That's the only way this could, could happen. And then when God says to David in sort of shadowy form, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. These are pronouncements that God made from eternity, right? He's, God is talking to his, his, his only begotten son. So look at Luke 1, 31 through 33. And behold, you will conceive. This is the uh, angel Gabriel speaking to Mary. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. So this is the Davidic covenant. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And you get like a hint. You, you Like there's something else going on than mere human kingship. And then it, it comes full blast in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So when it says his only begotten son, um, you know, it's not son in like a, 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 a generalized sense, God's relationship with human beings. This is God's unique eternal son. This is the Davidic king. Um, so that's the, that's the, that's the uh, Davidic covenant. Any questions before we go to the new covenant, which is what I hope to spend the bulk of our time in. <laughs> Any questions? Yes, Jeff. So you're saying the son will, will reflect his father, right? So it's not just the good things, but also the bad things. Yes. So if somebody was to see Jesus as the son of David, wouldn't he also reflect the bad parts of David? Yes. This is why um, in the Davidic covenant, God talks about how when he commits iniquity, mm-hmm. right? So. The best way to think about the Davidic covenant is that it start, it's ex, try not to think about it from God's eternal perspective. Try to think about it from the human perspective. It starts out really small, right? It starts out assuming David's son will be a sinner. But then over time, it can't possibly be that he is a sinner, it grows and grows. And so Jesus, as David's son, he, he's greater than David. This is why in Psalm 110, it says, my Lord said to my Lord. And then Jesus quotes that to fight with the Pharisees so that David calls his future son, he calls him my Lord. So even David is starting to have some inkling because you would never, I would never call Judah or Noah my Lord, <laughs> right? Um, like you never call your descendant your Lord. It's, it's just, you just don't do that. 
the, the father is always greater than the son. But through the course of the Bible, you realize this son will be greater than the father. How, how does that happen? Yeah, yeah. Christy? I remember reading also that this passage initially was about Solomon. And so when he said... It, it initially fits best with Solomon. Yeah, yeah and then... The idea, like, Jewish people believed that David was going to have a continuous line forever through, you know, uh, but Jews originally thought it was going to be human line. Yes, and, reasonable, reasonable thought, yeah. yeah. And, um, but now we see through Jesus that it's, it's a divine line, like that the human line led to the divine um, Right, and, and then, so, like, how do you understand David having an eternal throne? So the human explanation is, we just have an unbroken succession of descendants. Yeah. Right, but then from the New Testament perspective, we could finally understand. No, it's actually the reign of Jesus, which will last forever and ever and ever and ever. Yeah. So I, I don't know if that makes sense. Like it starts out from a hu- a very human way of looking at it, and then I don't know evolve is the correct word, but like it emerges that it's it's something else. Is is that what you're trying to get at, or like? Yeah. When you see what actually happened. Yes, that's right. Yeah. That's right. It's a kind of a retrospective um, interpretation of it. You, yes, I think that is a fair way to to put it, which is that um, as New Testament believers, we can now look back at the Old Testament and read it differently. Mm-hmm. But what I'm trying to communicate, and I, I want to communicate to you guys, and you can read the Bible so much more profitably, is that's a very good way to read it which is read 2 Samuel 7, think immediately of Jesus. But also think of it not as Jesus. Think of it as it must be Solomon. Oh, that's a big letdown. <laughs> well, then it must be somebody. Not Rehoboam, but then, you know, somebody. Who is it? And then, like, when you get to the end of 2 Kings, you're supposed to feel crushed. Like, how could this be, right? And then when the Ezra and Nehemiah, they come back and... Um, you know, uh, uh, I'm forgetting his name now. Um, but there are descendants of David who come back as like a governor or they're like a leader of the people and you're like kind of excited, but but it, it, nothing happens, yeah. Matthew 1 gives you genealogy. Yes, that's right, yeah, very good. All right, new covenant. I'm excited. All right, the new covenant, when we think about it, we're supposed to immediately think, well, what was wrong with the old covenant, right? That it needs to be new. Like if I say to you, I'm going to get you a new car, you're probably thinking that's because my old car is broken or something defective in my old car. You would never get something new unless the old is broken, right? So um, there's something wrong with the old covenant. And what is the old covenant? The old covenant is the Mosaic covenant. That's the dominant covenant in the Old Testament. Um and I want you to understand it, it ends in complete failure. Um, and so this is going to help us to understand what is the difference between the New Testament and the Old Testament, right? So, as I said, the word testament comes from the Latin word testamentum, which just means covenant in Latin. Um, So what is the difference? When I, um, when I was a, uh, a young child, I remember um, being told various explanations and they would say, oh, well, you know, the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. God is just a crankier God. He's just less tolerant with disobedience. And the New Testament God is full of grace and love. But I hope you realize that God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. What changes is not the character of God, but what changes is how, how God fills in what is missing in the, old, in, the, in the Mosaic Covenant. Okay, so we're going to take a good look at the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant ends in failure. How do we know the Mosaic Covenant ends in failure? How do we know it, it, it failed? <laughs> yes, they're exiled, right? So all the curses that were promised happen. 
And so the prophets are thinking, okay, how do we explain why the exile happened? And the explanation is disobedience. But why was there disobedience? Because people's hearts were hardened. The problem is the heart. So let me just read you two passages. Jeremiah 5, 20 to 23. Declare this in the house of Jacob. Proclaim it in Judah. Hear this, O foolish and senseless people who have eyes but do not see, but, but see not, who have ears but hear not. Do not fear me, declares the Lord. Do not tremble before me. But this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They have turned aside and gone away. Or listen to Ezekiel. God is speaking here to Ezekiel. But the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you, for they are not willing to listen to me, because all the house of Israel has have a hard forehead and a stubborn heart. That's the problem. The reason why judgment and exile, the reason why the temple was destroyed, Jerusalem was destroyed, is because people had a broken, a hard, stubborn heart. And so the prophets start to talk about how do we address the problem of the heart. And I, I want you to understand there's a kind of um, evolution in the prophets. Um, the early prophets have a good relationship with the kings. Um, so think about Samuel. He's constantly um, consulted. He's sort of like Merlin or like Gandalf. And then like he's like this wise man that the, the kings always go to and ask for counsel and help. You have the prophet Nathan, like they're constantly, inter- he's like the, he, he can come into David's throne room and then challenge him, right? But then over time, the kings become more wicked and then the prophets become more marginalized. So you have, for example, Elijah, he's running away from Ahab. He's a fugitive for his life. You have Jeremiah. He's the, he's the prophet at the very end, right before, uh, the con- before um, Jerusalem is conquered. And his entire life, He's mocked, he's ignored, he's imprisoned. One time he was thrown into a a muddy pit and left there for multiple days where they closed the lid. It was like a dried out cistern. Um, So he was entombed. He he basically thought he was going to die in there. And these later prophets who are on the outskirts, who are not inside, they start to think about the future. And they start to... Um, promise, or they, they start to talk about God's promise of a greater future. And the critique of the Mosaic Covenant is that the problem is it, it depended on external instruction and, and people had a hard heart. But the New Covenant will implant God's word into people's hearts so that their heart will be fixed in this way. So let's read Jeremiah. So there, there are two important passages, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36. By the way, Jeremiah and Ezekiel are both, are both prophets after the exile. So the new covenant prophecies are all after the exile. Does, does that make sense? Right? Um, so 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Right? So this old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, is not working. So now God's going to institute a new covenant. But this covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. That's the promise. That's the difference. It's not an external law, but the law will be inside people's hearts. It will be written on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each to his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins, their sin no more. So this huge transformation is going to happen in which people are not just sitting in like class, you know, listening to a Torah teacher, a rabbi, and then it not sinking in, but somehow God is going to put it in their hearts. How is this putting it in the heart going to happen? Let's continue to read um, Ezekiel 36, uh, verse 24 to 28. Here, the problem with the old covenant is that the people had a heart of stone. Um, 
that means like nothing would penetrate, nothing would go in. But God is going to transform this heart to love God. And how is he going to transform the heart? Listen to this. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries, that's the exile, and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And then listen to this. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. That's the answer. So God's very spirit will dwell with God's people, will uh, be with the people. God will put his spirit in people's hearts and that will transform them so that they will truly love um, yeah. The Holy Spirit, wasn't that active already with the creation of Earth? Yes, the Holy Spirit is there at, at the creation account. Yeah. You have the Holy Spirit empowering people like Samson, right? Yeah. Uh, filled with the Spirit. Uh, Saul was filled with the Spirit so he could prophesy. But the Spirit's work was limited. It did not transform people's hearts. Um, it would empower people. It would give them power of prophecy or whatever or, or strength. But the work that we truly needed was our hearts to be softened and transformed. Because because of Adam's fall, human beings naturally hate God. And when we hear external moral instruction, it doesn't make us good. It just makes us more rebellious, right? And so this is why the Mosaic Covenant utterly failed. Um, let me look at how we're doing in time. Oh, okay, we're doing pretty good. Um, this is the way Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. This is a fantastic passage. It really explains the new covenant really well. Um, and 2 Corinthians 3, Paul basically says the problem with the old covenant is that it gave moral commands, but it did not give the power to obey. That's the fundamental problem with the Mosaic Covenant. And therefore, the Mosaic Covenant's result, and he says its purpose was to kill you, was to make you realize that you're condemned and you're dead. He calls it a ministry of death. And then he calls the new covenant a ministry of life because the Holy Spirit produces true obedience. Okay, So let's read it. Our sufficiency is from God who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, right? So Paul and the apostles, they're ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. I want, I want to write this down because this distinction is, is, is quite important. So the old covenant is, Paul calls the letter. And the new covenant, he calls the spirit. Okay? Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. And when, he, when Paul says letter, he's talking about the text. He's talking about the, the commands. He's talking about the Ten Commandments, right? Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. That's the letter, okay? For the letter kills, right? This is a really profound concept. When you read the Old Test, when you read the, I'm sorry, the Ten Commandments, when you read be good, it ends up making you bad and it kills you because your heart rebels against God, right? Um, but the Spirit only gives life. But the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death, so he calls this the ministry of death, Meaning, what was the point of the Old Testament? Well, I mean, what was the point of the Mosaic Covenant? The point was not to give you life, but the point was to declare your death. Remember, it was a reenactment, a redramatization of the, the Garden of Eden, of the story of Adam and Eve. And Israel was in the Promised Land, given the Ten Commandments, given the Mosaic Laws, so that they would fail, be exiled, 
and be condemned to death. That was the whole point. That's the point of the letter. Um, now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone, right, that's the Ten Commandments and all the other laws, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? Right? So, now it has more glory because it's the ministry that really brings life. And why does it give life? Because we have a Savior, Jesus Christ, and we have the Holy Spirit who communicates life to us, who, who, who brings us to life because it transforms our hearts. This is really important. A lot of people think the purpose of religion is to give you moral laws and then, you know, a code of ethics and then, and you, like, you're supposed to be a good person. Like, a lot of people send their kids to church because they want their kids to be good. But Christianity says that whole enterprise, that whole project will only kill you. It's a ministry of death. It's, it's just an empty letter. You need the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, you are dead. Your, the Holy Spirit needs to transform your heart to love God. The problem with human beings is not a lack of information. It's that we don't have the Holy Spirit, Right? Um, Let me read to you, continuing on, verse 14. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Um, Paul here is talking about Moses' veil. Do you guys remember? He comes down from Mount Sinai. His face is radiant with God's reflected glory. So he has to put on a veil so that people are not blinded. And then Paul is using that as a metaphor for people's darkened minds, right? So that when they read the Old Testament, They can't see the goodness of God. They just are filled with resentment and anger and resistance and rebellion, right? That same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Only when Jesus Christ comes is the hostility, our our hostile hearts ends. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts, But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. So without Christ, without the Holy Spirit, when you read the Bible, all it does is it makes you hate God. It makes you more deeply entrenched in your sins and it takes you further away from salvation. Now the Lord is the Spirit and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, right? Now Christians have this unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And so this transformation happens when we can now look at the glory of Jesus Christ with our eyes opened, our our, our faces unveiled, and then we're being transformed over time. Um, and that's, that's the new covenant. That's the, the New Testament. That's the, um, that, that's the covenant that we are, are participants of and recipients of. Um, and I want to read to you uh, from Deuteronomy 29, um, where I want to show you that all along this was anticipated. You know, this is Moses all the way back in the Torah, he knows the problem is the heart, right? He's trying to explain why it is. I mean, I don't know um, if this has ever, uh, uh, this thought has ever come to you, but when you read the story of Israel in the wilderness and the Exodus, they experience all of these miracles and all these signs, manna from heaven, the Red Sea crossing. Why couldn't they believe? Why couldn't they trust God? Here's the answer. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, you have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, right? The 10 plagues, the great trial that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes 
to see or ears to hear. That's, that's the problem. And so the whole story of the Old Testament is to show us that we're missing the Holy Spirit and only when the Holy Spirit comes can we truly be saved and transformed. Um, let me just uh, read to you Luke 22 really quickly. I want you to know that Jesus Christ is the mediator of the new covenant. The new covenant requires a sacrificial death. This is why Jesus talks about blood. And Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. I, I often wonder, what were the disciples thinking as they were sitting there? Because Jesus is saying, This is the new covenant in my blood. He is saying the new covenant is going to at last be fulfilled. This tremendous promise that no longer will, you know, brother say to brother, know the Lord, but everyone, the law will be written in our hearts and this will be fulfilled through Jesus' blood. And then shortly thereafter, Jesus dies on the cross. And that, any questions or any, any comments? Did you just say that the disciples didn't understand it when you said it? Most certainly, yeah. I mean, this is why they all fled and they were running for their lives. Um, They understood enough to know that something great is happening because they believed he was the Messiah and they believed and, and he said, the new covenant is being fulfilled right now but they didn't know how to piece it all together. And it was only after the resurrection that it all makes sense. So for the disciples, the fulfillment came in a completely surprising, unexpected way. And that that's the story of Christianity. I love it, man. <laughs> it's all dots. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, the, 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 the Bible, from the perspective of the disciples and the first century um, Jewish people, it's a big puzzle. They have all these random puzzle pieces. The New Covenant, when the prophets speak of the New Covenant, they don't necessarily link it to the Davidic king. You don't really see that linkage, but then Jesus Christ links it all, right? He says the Davidic, God's promise to David's son, God's promise to the prophets of the New Covenant, you know, all these various promises, they're all like converge in one person in this one act in the death in the in the uh, crucifixion and resurrection uh, Christy you had a question yeah going back to the passage from Ezekiel Ezekiel 36 yeah I'm wondering how people interpret verses 24 and 28 because those are talking about seeing the Israelites back into their land yes and gathering them together um, and we know that that didn't happen when Jesus was um, on the earth, you know, um, and when the Holy Spirit initially came. Yes. I'm wondering how people interpret those. So there's a big debate. Um, let me see. So Ezekiel 36, this is verse 28. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. So the new covenant promises a return to the land, right? Um, so to some degree, when the people returned from captivity in Babylon, they were thinking maybe the new covenant is coming true. There's this really beautiful passage. Um, I think it's Ezra chapter 3. They uh, start to rebuild the temple because that's also the prophecies, right? And they built the foundation of the temple. And then... Um, the people are rejoicing because this is a huge step towards restoration. But it says that many of the elders who remember the old temple, the old glory, they start to weep. And then the sound of rejoicing and the sound of weeping was mingled so that you couldn't distinguish them. And I think it's a beautiful imagery of the experience of the Old Testament of the, of the Jewish people. They're constantly filled with hope, but it's like far, far below what the language of the prophets 
would indicate. And when they rebuild the temple, it's like a shoddy replica. It's like a, it's like a imitation, you know, <laughs> it's so weak compared to the uh, Solomon's temple. By the way, Herod, Herod the Great, he wanted to fashion himself as the Messiah. Even though he's not a direct descendant of David, the story that he was pumping out, his propaganda, was that he is the Davidic king. He is the Messianic king. So what was the great thing that he did in order to sort of like establish his bona fides, his credentials? He rebuilds the temple, right? So the temp- he makes the temple more grand than Solomon's temple. It's this huge complex with these marble stones. Remember the disciples like, wow, look at the, the, the grandeur of this. So everyone is trying to grasp at the fulfillment, but in the end, it doesn't happen. So what about the land, right? Um, so there, there are two camps in, in, in Christianity. One camp says that part of the prophecy has not been fulfilled. So we're still waiting for it. Uh, that school of thought is called dispensationalism. So they take the prophecy of the land very literally. Um, I'm in the school of thought. This is called covenant theology or reformed theology. I'm in the school of thought that the land, we are in the land. And the land is actually a preview, a foreshadowing of an actual land. It's called the new heavens and the new earth. And so, in some sense, it's already here, but in another sense, the fullest extent of it is yet to come. But we have returned. Like, when the people uh, returned from exile, they knew that this is not the true return, because they're, they're under um, Roman, uh, Roman occupation, right? So they, that's why they were waiting for the Romans to be overturned. But Jesus was telling the people, Jesus was saying something really remarkable. He's saying, even with the Roman occupation, you have returned to the land. Because the land was a picture of fellowship with God, um, peace and righteousness, and that's happening in the church. Does that make sense? So um, covenant theology basically says we are already now in the land because the land was always a symbol of salvation. Does, does that make sense, Christy? Yeah, and I think that kind of goes off with what you were saying in the last class that Covenant theology also says that the church basically replaces Israel. So, in other that that the language of replace is sort of an attack line. But yes, I I, I will accept that. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, the the language of the uh, the covenant theology language is that uh, the Gentile people have been grafted in. Right. Yeah. Yes. So I understand this framework, but it is troubling. Because it, I feel like it really takes away agency from a person. That the only real uh, path to life is that God gives His Spirit. Mm-hmm. And there is no life apart from God the Spirit. His Spirit. Yes. So it makes a person feel like they don't have agency in the matter to choose between life and death. Because we are not in control of getting the spirit for ourselves somehow, right? It's not within our power to get the spirit. It's a gift. So I understand the framework, and it's absolutely consistent from Scripture. Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. Yeah. But it is troubling in that it gives God such sovereignty. Wow, so this is a great question. Um, great question. Let me say two parts. The first thing is the fact that it's a gift reinforces that salvation is truly by grace. If it was a matter of human effort, then um, human beings can boast. It would be a matter of works and not truly of grace. But the second thing that I want to say is the Bible always speaks about what's called dual agency. Okay? <laughs> So this is kind of a, a deep concept. Um, dual agency says that God is sovereign. Okay? And human choice matters. 
So the Bible says all the time, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Seek his face, right? Knock and the door will be answered to you. So the Bible all the time talks about, you know, be filled with the Holy Spirit, right? Um, walk in the Spirit. It talks about human choice mattering. We can pursue God. We can seek his Spirit. We can receive and believe. But at the same time, God is totally sovereign and it matters ultimately, you know, uh, before the foundations of the earth, he elected some salvation and elected others to eternal damnation. And they're both true simultaneously in a, in a profound paradox that human minds cannot understand. <laughs> yes, Dorothy? Just a quick comment that I feel like the American cultural values of like self-responsibility uh, and like control over the future, yeah. right, like agency we have in our own lives also contributes to um, the difficulty that Christina was saying. Like I share that same difficulty. Um, but like in cultures where you believe that fate you know, is is the major driving force in life. Like, I wonder if it's easier for them to accept the the God is sovereign. Mm. Yeah, it could be that different cultures predispose you to different parts of the yeah. But we're not supposed to bias one way or the other. We're supposed to live in the tension and hold them both as true. And you're supposed to be uncomfortable, and you're supposed to be. Puzzled. <laughs> so um, there's a great expression by Augustine. Pray as if it all depends on God. Work as if it all depends on you. Right? So I think it's a wonderful balance. Right? When you're facing this great adversity or this great ordeal, pray intensely. Right? Just say, God, it's you. Please intervene. Miracle, Lord. And then you get up from your prayer and you work hecka hard. You do everything you can because your choice matters. But then it all depends on God. Yeah. Saint Augustine. Augustine. Let me close in prayer. Almighty God, thank you for your word. Thank you for paradoxes that remind us that you are God and we are not. Um, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Mm-hmm.